Welcome to episode number 45 of the Bearded Marketers podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. You can catch new episodes every Monday morning at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast. You can also find us on iTunes. Please take a second to follow us on twitter.com slash thebeardedmktrs. You can also found us on Google Plus and Facebook. I think those are the ones we're actually paying attention to. So That's follow correct. us on those. Posting some good content, especially on Twitter. Hit us up if you have any questions. Also, 904-270-9603. Call us with any questions you might have, voicemails, texts, whatever, suggestions for the show. It could be even something that you're struggling with, and maybe we'll use it as an anonymous example on the podcast. And you can sit there and feel good about yourself, that you're helping others. You contributed to this wonderful podcast that is, is happening every week. Before we get started, we always like to talk about what we're drinking to get into the mood, to bring you the issues, the marketing news, topics, tips, tactics, tricks, TTTs of the <laughs> internet marketing world. So, Corey, what are you drinking? Tonight, I am doing a margarita. How about yourself? I'm doing a dark and stormy. Ooh, I've never heard go-to. of that one. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> Hilarious. But I will say for our listeners that have been with us for a while, first of all, thank you. But second of all, we have just been gifted a recipe book for many fancy cocktails so keep an ear out for new and never seen before drinks on upcoming episodes yeah we uh, looked at the ingredient list and had to consult some other sources so i have some take some trips to some specialty cocktail stores to pick up some ingredients absolutely also one more thing i mean we're coming up on a milestone here what is this 50 episodes five zero five zero we're We've already recorded crisis here probably <laughs> 75. You know, we're only on episode 45. We had probably roughly 30 rough cuts that didn't make it. Maybe we'll release some sort of like uh, greatest hits, outtakes oh, yeah. that, you know, never made it to iTunes. That may be something we'd add on to an episode 50.2 or something like that. 50, 50 and a half. I don't huh. know. We'll do something like that. Like so the, the lost tapes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So what are the topics tonight? Run us down the list. So let's kick this off. Structured content on social web. Rob is going to detangle that mess for us and help it's us. A mess. How do we get some of that sweet, sweet social juice on our search engines? Oof, dirty. Moving right along, Google becoming stricter for ads, and what does that mean for us marketers and us just consumers of the search engine? Next, enclosing the checkout. Mm, We're going to leave that one vague, so you're going to stick around to see what we mean by that. And lastly... You know, it wouldn't be an episode if we didn't talk more about Google, so we're going to do it. (laughs) Google and guest blogging. What are some things you need to keep in mind for that? And Professor Rob's going to enlighten us. Put my SEO hat, my wizard's hat. Oh, yeah. uh, yeah, Well, Well, speaking of that, go ahead and put on your wizard hat. Uh Uh Uh-oh, I'm not ready. Let us know structured content. What does that even mean? Okay, yeah. Yeah, structured content. So I think we actually covered this on one of the very recent ones. We were talking about Google structured content in terms of if you did a search for certain types of queries inside Google, you'd see specialized search engine results inside the pages. So for example, if you did a search for best cheesecake recipe ever, you might actually get a list back of pictures of cheesecakes and some little snippets about the recipes themselves, maybe some ratings, maybe some cook times maybe some ingredients, descriptions, things like that. So things that were specialized and structured towards recipes. Other examples include, which I'm sure everybody has seen, places, local places, all of that kind of structured content. Another popular form of structured content are products. So a picture of the product, the price, some ratings, shipping information. So that's sort of what structured content is on Google. Social networks have sort of taken a page from Google's book And they're now including certain types of structured content directly inside the social media platform. So, for example, 
if you go to Twitter and you see a tweet that has a link in it, there might be a little link next to that link that says expand, and you can actually get a summary of what's on that page inside Twitter. Like directly beneath the tweet, there might be a little picture there. There might be the headline from the page and a short little paragraph so you about can, like, it. Creep on the link before you click on it. Exactly. What's, so what's can, about right? This? So exactly. So you can preview everything inside Twitter. Stay on there. Twitter obviously loves this, but marketers are loving it too because it lets them sort of advertise on Twitter outside of the obviously the character limitations of Mm -hmm. what tweets give you. So there are also many other kinds of structured content. For example, on Twitter, you can embed videos, which we're working on right now with the Bearded Marketers. There's an approval process. Get on our level. Exactly. Um, Which, by the way, if you haven't checked out, uh, we have a couple new things up on the website. We've got, obviously, tune-up videos, if you aren't familiar with those. Please head over to their website, thebeardedmarketers.com. Hit up our website tune-ups. We run through websites, talk about what we're doing. We also have... Take in applications, too, if you want us to run through your website. Or maybe competitors, then yeah. submit your uh, page. <laughs> make, make fun of them. We'll make fun of them for you. <laughs> we also have some other videos on there. Anyway, so that was sort of a segue into the other kinds of things they have on Twitter. So, like I said, they have video. They also have audio embedding, which we're also working on for the podcast. So you actually listen to the podcast and or watch our videos directly on Twitter's site and leave tweets and whatever retweets and whatever you want to do inside Twitter. This isn't limited just, though, to Twitter. This is also happening on Pinterest. This is also happening on Google Plus and on Facebook. Each of them use different types of code that you need to look for and that you need to of course. yeah, put on your <laughs> website. Unfortunately, Twitter is the only one who sort of stands out from the rest and uses its very own proprietary form of coding that you need to build, especially for Twitter. The rest use what's called the Open Graph protocol. So do a Google search. If you're trying to get out on all the social networks like everyone is, go to the Open Graph website and it'll do a basic rundown explanation of what you need to do on your website to make it show up in a beautiful and wonderful way on Facebook and Google+. We'll tweet out a link to OpenGraph and maybe some uh, articles to check out. It it seems very technical, but honestly, there's some very easily templated code examples out there and really anyone Yeah, especially if you want to keep it simple in terms of just passing your headline and a short little description along with all of your social media posts and whenever someone talks about you, that's pretty straightforward probably already have similar code on your website to make that happen for the search engine. So it's a pretty easy transition over there. But it's something that is fairly new. A lot of people aren't taking advantage of it. Give you that competitive advantage. Right. It's especially new on some of the networks. For example, Twitter, some of their formats, that stuff's brand new. There aren't a lot of people doing that. Pinterest is huge right now, obviously. They've got product meta information that you can pull in. So you can actually advertise your product inside Pinterest, and that is for free. So if you have a post about top five tips on how to do whatever, and you're selling a product related to it, you actually can have that product show up inside Pinterest with a buy now button and a price and all that sort of stuff. So get on that if you rely on that kind of traffic. Or maybe you haven't because you didn't even know you could do that. Yeah, exactly. So that was the sort of technical corner. Okay. Get up to date on your structured data. I feel like that was too technical, so I thought no, you did a good job yeah, breaking it, it wasn't, down. It wasn't that bad. Keep an eye out on our Twitter account and Facebook. We'll shoot you out some links on how you can take advantage of some of this new social integrations. Like Rob was saying, there's not a ton of people actually taking advantage of this right now, so it give you quite a competitive edge. Moving right along, one of the interesting data articles that we came across the last couple weeks was one on Marketing Pilgrim, which shout out to Marketing Pilgrim. Your website doesn't work on some devices, so go ahead and fix that. So opposite of shout out? (laughs) Yes. This is a a shout down. Shout down. (laughs) 
<laughs> good content on the site, but you need to fix your template. Anyways, moving along. Luckily, we're not grading them on their coding skills, but more their content. And they had a article in which... Google actually released some 2013 summary data on their advertising platform. And most notably, what they released was really interesting is how many people they kicked to the curb. And one of the things that Google came out publicly and said at the end of 2012 and into 2000, 2000, 2000, and at the end of 2013 was getting stricter on the individuals that they allowed on their advertising platforms and what products and or services they were pushing on said networks. In particular, to put some numbers behind that, in 2013, actually, I'm going to ask you, how many (laughs) ads do you think that they disapproved in 2013? Yes. Ads. Uh, Can you give me at least a ballpark? You know, you're not going to give me a ballpark. What is in your mind's eye right now? Um, it's, it's a million that's in my mind's eye. One million? Yeah. Okay. Your mind's eye is very small. <laughs> Try again. One. Okay. This is 300 terrible. million. 350 million. That was pretty damn close. Good second, second, guess. second guess. So in 2013, Google removed 350 million bad ads and banned more than 270,000 advertisers. Get wow. out. We don't want your money. Wow. You're kicked to the curb. Now, is that in the U.S. or just worldwide? That is global platform. <clears throat> okay. So that's probably a lot of Russian spammers in there, Ukrainian, right. and also nothing some against, U.S. people. Nothing against the countries or the, generally the people in them. Uh, a little bit. Spammers, <laughs> spammers tend to originate tend to. from your areas. Yes. Unfortunately, I thought that that was just interesting and just the sheer volume. Now, granted, that doesn't mean that Google actually went and looked at 350 individual million ads. Probably a couple of these bad advertisers might have had tens of thousands of ads that are rolled up into that. Along with some of the stats that Google released, they said that because of their efforts, what's happened is in certain industries, particularly in health and beauty especially in the diet space and things like that, not only are they banning a lot of people, but their efforts have, because word is getting around that they've gotten stricter, they're having to do it less and less, meaning that either they're getting rid of the major offenders and they're not coming back, or what's also happening is word is spreading, so people are just avoiding AdWords altogether. And so it seems that they're, at least from what they're reporting, the quality of their ad network is improving and there's some long tail effects to getting super strict this year and kicking a lot of people out of the network. And I would say that there's probably a fair amount of people that might have gotten kicked out that didn't maybe deserve it, that just Mm kind of got caught up. I mean, anytime you institute policies on a global scale like Google might have, there's going to be innocent people that get caught. But I just thought that those numbers are are insane. Yeah, those are absolutely outrageous. What's interesting, though, as well, not only is Google getting strict on people serving or requesting bad ads to be served on the platform, but they're also banning sites from displaying ads. So another Mm -hmm. initiative that Google has for us marketers that we need to pay attention to is if you run ads on the display network, which means that your ads are running on 
someone else's website is syndicating Google ads, they're also kicking out a lot of websites from their display network and getting much stricter on who they allow running ads on their site. Last year, they kicked out over 4,000 websites from the network and disabled over 10,000 AdSense accounts in regards to their efforts there. So they're trying to tackle the front of eliminating some of your unfair competition as a marketer, but also making your marketing dollars more impactful by making sure that your ads are only running on quality websites. I just can't get over the, what was it, the one, the 300 and something million ads. 350 million. That's absolutely crazy. I mean, obviously I've had a, a long and and storied history (laughs) with Google on both the AdWords front and natural search. And I think that, you know, what you were getting at earlier, which was sort of that now that they're cracking down so hard and they have been, I feel like for at least a couple years now, people have gotten the message and they stop trying to do the things that they know they can't really get away with anymore. So for example, a lot of our affiliate stuff that we used to run years ago, has been shut down. And we've also had tons of accounts since then for various websites and different partners and things like that. But we now know what we can and can't get away with. I mean, working with Google to sort of, yeah, they did shut down, you know, X number of accounts, whatever. We can't advertise for those websites anymore. Now we know we can't get away with doing that. We had to build better products. I almost wonder what the net result is of this in terms of a better internet. Right. Right. So not only are these people not advertising and yes, the ads are better and less spammy, but You have fewer people trying to make those websites and bad products and things like that because they know they can't get traffic anymore from Google. You know, you can always go to some of the toolbar providers and some of those outside sources, but the volume's just not there for scale, like on the big search engines. And again, you might be able to auto-gen out sites and things like that, but you're right. I think that Google, Yahoo, and Bing, as they're pushing more and more quality guidelines... It's challenging even the scam artists to become better at what they do mm-hmm. and potentially moving the internet to a better place as a whole. So yeah, I mean, I, I I just see that you know, like again, like I said, with with what I've done a lot in the past, we turn from affiliate marketers into we run our own products now, and with that, our websites have gotten better, our marketing's gotten better, our products have gotten more straightforward. It's just led to a better experience for all of our visitors. And I'm sure that applies to a lot of other people out there. So it's better for the web on the whole, frustrating for marketers. Yeah, there's some belly aching out there, but in the whole, I think it's driving the internet to a better place. So moving right along and closing the checkout. This was kind of a vague topic that we talked about at the beginning. And what we're talking about here is we came across some research that was talking about one of the banes of many e-commerce sites out there is this metric that people whisper in halls and cry about at night and that is cart abandonment the genesis of this research was trying to explore why so many people abandon out of carts and websites in general once they've added some things to their cart what the data spawned was a discussion about how many sites still do not treat checkout as a unique ecosystem for customer experience. And so what do I mean by that is particularly they were talking about enclosing the checkout. And to clarify what they're talking about there is you might notice on some sites when you add some items to your cart and progress past the cart page that the visual experience changes up quite a bit and that website might go very minimalistic like the Mm -hmm. header navigation might be removed some of the footer links they might have promotional things on the side rails those are taken away and essentially what some sites do is try to i would say get rid of the noise and focus you on 
give me them dollars and I'll give you these products. And that's what the goal is. Essentially, remove all those distractions. Now you've indicated an interest to me that you are done with your shopping experience and you want to further this transaction and pay for it. Let's go ahead and remove any sort of threat to your short, short attention span and finish up this transaction, Mm -hmm. provide that as a service. And we'll go ahead and tweet out this link that has a lot of examples from e-consultancy. I think it's still a good exercise for some people to evaluate how your checkout process works and how many distractions that you have. I do think that the whole encapsulating or enclosing the checkout is maybe a tad overblown. I don't think having navigation present is going to, or not having it present is going to mean the difference in like 20% conversion rate. Right. Starting to cut straws there. Really your conversion rates and your abandoned cart rates, those sorts of things are influenced pre-cart. You should have already done your hardcore selling before people are navigating throughout your checkout. That shouldn't be the thing that you're relying on communicating your final value propositions for and getting people bought into the process. They should be tripping over themselves to hand over the money because you've done such a good job of marketing to get people to the site and believing in what you have to offer. But then once they're there, reinforcing the reasons why they need said product or service. And then now it's just a, I'm fumbling because I'm trying to get my credit card out fast enough to finish up this process. So I think that when we're talking about card abandonment and we start focusing a lot, because a lot of companies do on these like checkout best practices, some of them miss the mark in understanding there's some things to be gained in checkout. You should obviously have good UX, but a lot of the fallout of checkout happens not because our checkout processes are so egregious, but that we haven't done a very good job pre-checkout to get these people excited about their purchase and really bought into what we have to offer. Yeah, I think that is definitely an angle that definitely applies to certain categories in in e-commerce. But I think that there is another angle there too, which is that sometimes people get into carts and get distracted by other things that they may want to buy maybe initially in their mind in in addition to whatever it is that they're buying and then maybe get sidetracked, caught Mm -hmm. up in something else. Their phone rings, they forget what they were doing, and they're out of the process, right? Right. Or, ooh, I like those shoes, I'll forget about these other ones, but they're not Mm -hmm. on sale, so I'll wait. You know, all these sorts of various things can happen. And so maybe it's not just uh, purely a let's not have distractions for people because we won't get more money from them, right? right? It's maybe let's remove distractions because they're just that, they're distractions. And yes, we could potentially make more money from them, but overall it creates a better experience for people. But another thought I had in my mind while you were talking about this was that it's funny how e-commerce is almost the exact opposite from the real world, right? So if I'm in line at Target, there's tons of shit around me as I'm trying to check out, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's like those stores know to put all of these little trinkets and little cheap and candy and the sodas and the newspapers and the magazines and all this stuff right next to where I'm about to buy because they know I'm pretty likely to just, oh, just grab one of these yeah, little right. things. Yeah, it's convenient. Yeah, I'll get some Tic Tacs, you know, right. throw that in there, right? Mm-hmm. It works almost the exact opposite way it's in like, e-commerce. Don't do right? that. <laughs> and I think it's maybe taken until recently where people, marketers have realized that, yes, maybe the, the checkout process isn't this great way like it is in real life mm-hmm. to just throw a bunch of related crap at you and hope that you buy those things too. Buying online just doesn't really work like that. 
And that simpler process actually focuses people better to accomplish the goal that they're looking for. And I'm not really sure what the psychology is. I mean, maybe it's just that if I'm in the real life store, I know what a pack of gum is or whatever. So I don't need to check it out. I can just throw it yeah, in the cart. Yeah, I think that's part of it is the consumables that you're selling on a site typically aren't that small that we would have. Could they be, though? Well, that's where I, mean, I was actually could going you sell with packs it, of gum? <laughs> is I think that part of the issue that I see is... A lot of companies are pretty poor at Mm cross-selling and having intelligence behind the cross-sell options. So, for example, I go on some sites, we'll use J.Crew as an example, and I have a couple things in my cart. Well, instead of necessarily trying to upsell me another Gringham shirt or something like that, you know I have a tie in my cart and a dress shirt. You just offer me a small tie clip or something like that, and I see very few sites that seem to have good intelligence on this cross-selling relationship and maybe i'm just a really odd shopper and people don't know how to deal with me online i seriously doubt that that's i don't know how to deal with you in real life so (laughs) i'm sure online it's difficult i think that perhaps like you were talking about we need to mirror some of these learned items from the real world and how we suggest products Yeah, well, I think the key there, though, is maybe low-priced additions, because in your example of a tie clip, I know how much J.Crew's tie clips are, (laughs) and they're like $7,500. So in that case, that's not just a simple little, oh, check the box. Yeah, I'll take that too, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm sure J.Crew could come up with things, and I know that they do sell lower, much lower-priced things that maybe I would buy spontaneously Mm -hmm. if they were just sort of related to what I was buying, and maybe they were just a couple bucks. Oh, yeah, I'll throw that in. I mean... It may not be the kind of thing that they primarily sell on their website. Maybe they don't even list it anywhere else. But it's just one of those little add-on things that, you know, they make a buck or two on. And it doesn't cost them any more to just throw that in the box with whatever else it is that you're buying. I think it's an opportunity for a lot of online e-commerce stores. Like you were saying, that are, they're not really doing that. No one's really doing that well, mm-hmm. um, especially in the in the cart itself. So. All right. So all good thought. In closing, I do think that it is a good exercise for us to kind of look at our checkouts. And we're talking about e-commerce here, but I think that can be translated to B2B and lead capture things as well. Like how many distractions do you have when you are trying to close the deal with someone? It doesn't have to be necessarily that they're buying something from you, but if someone's trying to give you information or you're trying to get someone's attention, how many other things do you have competing in those processes that can easily distract people or get them into loops where their main goal gets lost? Take the time to evaluate your checkout. How does that look when people are actually trying to close the deal with you? Is there some newer technologies or coding practices that you could take to give them some additional information? So looking at our checkout, it's okay to have links to your return policy or help desk, but maybe put those in modal boxes and not take them onto new pages to keep them into the Mm -hmm. process. Try to evaluate some of your processes, again, when you're trying to close that deal and see how can we keep people focused, but also try to think of more innovative ways. Innovative. Innovative Innovative. ways, (laughs) as Rob was laying out, on how we might provide some additional value as people check out with us. All right, so wrapping up. Episode number 45, we're going to talk about Google one more time. Uh, this is almost in the exact same vein as what you were talking about before, but we're talking about natural search link building strategies specifically for Google. 
They may apply to other search engines, but in the real world, those don't really matter. We don't pay <laughs> attention to them. We don't even care about our rankings and or traffic from them. Google is the only one that matters. So lately, Google has been, at least specifically Matt Cutts from Google, who is head of the web spam team over at Google. Actually, side note, Matt Cutts actually posts a lot of videos to YouTube answering questions that webmasters post into Google's webmaster tools. So definitely take a second and check that out. Just do, I'm pretty sure a YouTube search for Matt Cutts will pull up his channel and, and there's tons of videos on there. You can get all sorts of unique insight into what Google's web spam team actually thinks about certain strategies about search engine optimization and link building and duplicate content and all sorts of things. So this is based on a series of his videos that he's done over time where he's discussed the concept of guest blogging. In particular. So guest blogging, for those listeners out in podcast land who may not be familiar with the concept, it's essentially when you yourself sort of own and run a blog and, and maybe you have someone else from some other blog guest post on yours. They use their author byline, but they also tend to link out to their own blog from yours. This has been, I don't know, I mean, this has been around for years. Sure. It's a way for bloggers to sort of get additional exposure mm-hmm. for themselves. I mean, if you go to all the top internet marketing blogs out there right now, there's tons of this ancestral cross-linking breeding, you know, going on between all Solid the internet. Solid word choice. <laughs> Thank you. Between all of these internet marketing blogs, basically all these guys post on all, everybody else's blogs and so forth, all the while linking between themselves. So Google's Matt Cutts has been talking about this over the past few years in terms of you know, what are the implications of doing this? Obviously, a lot of people are doing this for link building, maybe even creating sort of link networks. And how does Google know if it's a legitimate sort of guest blog post in the example of maybe search engine land or something like that, where I think most would deem it a valuable resource, a valuable post and something that's not spammy versus someone's spam network of blog sites who offer no value. And how, to, how does Google sort of distinguish between those types of things? Over the years, though, the web spam team has seemed to become more and more particular until it's almost come to this point now where they're basically saying no more guests, no more guests blogging for the purpose of building links. If you're going to do that, you need to no follow your links and or don't link back to yourself because it's basically a no bueno anymore. Hmm. Um, So I think this is just another example of if you're taking any sort of strategies online to artificially influence your search engine rankings, you need to cut it out before it's going to burn you because it's going to. Google is sort of every six months now knocking out a major strategy that search engine optimizers in air quotes have been using for years. So just knock that sort of stuff out and just stick to good marketing and good products and good social media marketing that's good and pure and... Yeah, I mean, the, the not only are you working with borrowed time, but as we've mentioned many times, if you haven't been part of a slapdown process Slap from fest. Google, <laughs> they are not the pinnacle of customer service. So if you do get penalized, the repercussions can be severe and also resolution is not oftentimes quick. Both to your mental health <laughs> This is how physical Rob physical health and your financial <laughs> bank account health. All of these things. True. It's very detrimental. All right. 
that's going to do it for us in this episode of Beard Marketers. We'd greatly appreciate a share if you enjoyed your time here. Also, give us a call, 904-270-9603. Have a topic for us to discuss or struggling with something. Maybe the boss is yelling at you. You don't know where to turn. Give us a call. We've got a lot of experience in the industry. And if we can't help you out, we definitely know quite a few people out there and can put you into contact with someone that can. But that's going to do it for us. Again, thank you for your time, and we'll see you next week.